No, 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 no. I'm recording a podcast. Hold on. Just, just one second. I got to lock the door. I forgot to lock the door. Welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. This week will be, or this episode, I should say, since we're hardly a weekly podcast, we'll be discussing <laughs> fortitude. And Potter and I are joined by Elliot. Elliot, welcome back. How have you been? Thank you. Uh, I've been well, I think. Um, <laughs> it's good to be back. It's Excellent. good to have you back. Good to have you, yeah. Thanks. So, so Potter, would you tell us a little bit about that wonderful music we just listened to? Absolutely, yeah. This is Claudio Monteverdi, the great uh, Venetian composer, and it's the Sanctorum Meritis, the hymn for Vespers for the Feast of Martyrs. So we were uh, sort of discussing what to listen to beforehand, and uh, Potter uh, suggested the Monteverdi, and then both of us suggested uh, other, other things. things. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, <laughs> very other things. Big <laughs> and Potter said, oh, Perfect. This is perfect. You guys uh, are, are lukewarm on Monteverdi. We'll definitely do the Monteverdi then. So tell me a little bit about Monteverdi. What is it that uh, uh, attracts you so to this piece in particular? Obviously, the text is very fitting. but Yeah, well, I think that Monteverdi is a brilliant composer. Not everyone has, has seen the light here. But I mean, I think it's partly a matter of habituation. I mean, music is in a way universal and is based on the harmonic principles that go to the foundations of the universe as Plato tells us in the Timaeus and so on. But uh, part, but music is also partly conventional. It's partly a matter of style. And if you're not accustomed to the sort of late Renaissance, early Baroque style, then it can sound kind of monotonous. But if you listen to it constantly, as I did in my youth and childhood, then you, you begin to see the whole world of, of glory and beauty in, in Monteverdi's complex harmonies. So I've never, yeah, I, I, I'm not uh, educated enough in Renaissance music uh, but one thing that's always struck me as kind of delightful about it is that it really, uh, there seems to be a way, not so much Monteverdi, but there's a lot of it where it's clear they just ha they haven't figured out quite what they're doing. <laughs> so like, I remember this one piece, uh, there's this style of composition from, from the Renaissance where on each downbeat, they would have a uh, resolution. And on each upbeat, there'd be a dissonant chord, like a 5-7 or something like that. Uh, and so it'd be, Resolution, dissonance, resolution, dissonance. Uh, and uh, they uh, they did this every single down and upbeat, and it, it doesn't really work, but it's clear they were just so happy to have found, like, hey, we can resolve these chords back home. We'll do it every single upbeat and downbeat. Uh, yeah, well, Monteverdi's not like that. He is extremely, he, uh, he, he really knows what he's doing. He's, he's perfected his style. He's maybe, uh, this piece is kind of maybe, if we're, if we're talking about fortitude, this is maybe the piece that happens once you've uh, uh, really come through the dark night of the soul and uh, 
have left the struggle behind, as it were. But Fortitude's all about the struggle, right? Well, yeah, this this recording especially. There are other recordings of the Sanctorum Meritis that are more, that are much faster and more aggressive. But this John uh, Elwes recording is very expansive and majestic and peaceful, as you say. I mean, Fortitude has to do with moderating aggression. So it, ha- it has to do with having the right amount of aggression. But that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that requires everything to be ultimately subordinated to reason. So th- that expansive. Another piece of music we were thinking about using was ancient Greek uh, flute music. <laughs> the, the Spartan warriors, when they marched into war, they uh, their problem was not that they were not daring enough, but that they were too daring. So as they were marching into battle, they would play this very peaceful flute music to moderate their aggression. Yeah, I think some of the other choices were... Uh, just just for for folks back home uh we, we had prokofiev's uh alexander nevsky which uh the the great russian triumph over the teutonic germans <laughs> but it's it's really <laughs> it's a brilliant knights, it's yeah. uh yeah yeah it's yeah teutonic knights it's a brilliant uh score and it's all about battle and then uh what were you suggesting elliot you, you had shostakovich was it or oh yeah the the uh leningrad symphony is it um the seventh symphony uh that has this crazy uh uh march that lasts about 10 minutes uh where you hear the the germans approaching the city and it starts with a single drum beat and then gradually the entire orchestra builds on top of it into this horrible cacophony but it really has nothing to do with fortitude I mean, well, just like... no, I think the theme that I wanted to bring out from our choices was that it was all about fortitude in the face of advancing Germans. In the face of advancing Germans, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although... Fortitude is ultimately about uh, withstanding the Prussians, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. So, but turning to the subject now, one thing that struck me as we were preparing is uh, we all were looking at Peeper's uh, Four Cardinal Virtues, and... I'd always sort of thought of fortitude as something that uh, gets left behind in a way. It's a virtue that is about overcoming obstacles. So in in heaven, you can think, well, you'll still have prudence. You'll you'll be just. You'll be perfectly just. Uh, And temperance, maybe it's not the same way, but you'll obviously... uh, your passions will be totally curbed. They, they, they won't uh, rebel against reason at all. Uh, but fortitude seems like it will get left behind because there will be no more obstacles to overcome. But then what I notice is that Pieper talks about how fortitude is so necessary for the mystical life. So maybe that can be our jumping off point. And it, it really struck me that Aquinas is a little different than Aristotle on the subject of fortitude. Well, I mean, in a way it is, fortitude does have to do with uh, vulnerability. And right. that's what, what people does begin with. That mm-hmm. The angels don't, are not brave because they don't have any dangers. They're incorruptible. No one can wound an angel. Um, but we, beings of flesh and blood, are capable of being wounded. And not, not just in our flesh and blood, but that's sort of the, the primary instance. And so... Uh, we need to have 
a virtue which moderates our passions with regard to dangers. So why don't we say, you know, unless lest we try to define whether virtue is teachable before we define it, let's say what is what is fortitude then for Aquinas and for Aristotle and for the, the Catholic tradition? I was actually just looking at Plato's uh, dialogue on on courage, the, the Lachis, and, or Leches, I suppose you say in English. And uh, <laughs> the poor, poor General Lachis, when Socrates asks him, what is bravery? He says, well, there's no trouble defining that. <laughs> you have to think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Don't say that. Foolhardiness. <laughs> you fool, yeah. You're going to eat those words pretty soon. <laughs> so what's, what's the initial definition? What does he say? So he says, fortitude is, is standing, uh, standing at your post in battle and not running away. Okay, not running away. That's yeah. a low, yeah. it's a low yeah. bar. There's a sort of wonderful... Uh, uh, comic uh, necessity. There's a way in which familiarity can be very comic, like sitcoms use this, where, you know, right. the, the the crazy character enters and everyone knows what he's going to do and that makes it even more funny. And in the Platonic dialogues, there's this wonderful sort of comic, like each dialogue has a guy and you're like, oh, this guy's going to be clueless. Socrates is going <laughs> to eat him up. And there he is, being clueless. <laughs> and Socrates says, oh, well, I'm so ignorant. And you're like, ah, oh, Socrates is going to give it to him now. <laughs> exactly. And sure enough, it, it happens just as you expect. <laughs> Except, I guess the, the exception would be the uh, Parmenides where Socrates gets, uh, gets it's the one, I think the only one where he really gets schooled. Right, where he's, uh, a, he's a teenager in that one. Yeah, with with uh, <laughs> the other interlocutor is uh, Aristotle. Right, right. Uh, not the same Aristotle, <laughs> no, but different it, Aristotle. I've always found that funny. Uh, we, we talked a little bit in our episode about virtue a while back, about how you have many, many virtues, but the, the most important ones are called the hinge virtues or the cardinal virtues because they perfect the parts of the soul that are most concerned with the good, with desiring and the good and avoiding evil. And those parts of the soul are um, the practical reason, which is perfected by prudence, the will, which is perfected by justice, the uh, concupiscence or desiring part of the soul, which is perfected by temperance, um, and the irascible or spirited part of the soul, the tumos, which is perfected by fortitude or bravery. And so bravery is that part, is that virtue which is uh, concerned with moderating the passions of the spirited part of the soul, moderating the passions that have to do with dangers and injuries. And bravery in particular is about um, finding the mean between uh, being too cowed by dangers and running away, <laughs> take Lacus's definition, um, and being foolhardy where you don't, uh, without counsel, you rush into dangers and lose the good because you, you're not really thinking about what's going to happen. So this struck me when I was reading Aristotle for, the, for when, I, when, I, when I was young and I first read Aristotle's account of uh, courage. Is it seems I, I was so I was kind of baffled by it because it seems like he's saying, well, you want to be afraid, but not too afraid. And you want to be rash, but not too rash. So instead of like, it seemed like you were mixing two vices. And if you mix them right, 
there's the virtue uh, of courage. Is that is that wrong or is that actually what he's saying? That always struck me as like odd. No, the vices are are um, a disorder between the passions and reason. So, if you're the 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 cowardly man is vicious because his passions of fear uh, dominate him and he's not able to moderate them by reason. So if he's trying to achieve some difficult good, he, he won't achieve it um, because he'll be cowed by fear. Mm-hmm. So it's not that cowardice is some positive thing that you then have to mix with daring in order to get the virtue of bravery. Cowardice is a lack of order between the passion of fear and, and reason. Right. I guess what I'm saying is Aristotle thinks the passion of fear. So in a very modern way, uh, I, one of the modern mistakes is to think of fear as a sort of unadulterated evil. Uh, Aristotle seems to think, no, there's such a thing as having too little fear. Yeah. Whereas, like, I think the modern idea is more like, I think the one I had when I was younger was more like, uh, you get rid of all emotions, and then (laughs) it's easy. You don't have fear. Yes. you You don't have eagerness, and you can just dispassionately make your little rational calculus and... Absolutely. See, this is this is Wonderful. because you're from the south, which has this kind of <laughs> corrupted stoicism, which is all about just being dispassionate. Joel. <laughs> uh, I think it is a very American. Yeah, corrupted stoicism does seem to be a very American. For uh, sure, I I grew up with that. I I mean, it wasn't taught to me, but um, that's definitely something that I I aspired to. You know, right. Um, but so I'm looking at I'm looking at Thomas um, in the Summa, and uh, what is this question 123, Article Six of the Secunda Secunde, whether endurance is the chief act of fortitude. And one thing that I remember um, being remarkable in Thomas's treatment of of fortitude is uh, that actually it goes back uh, in a way to to Locus's, um uh, definition where it's just staying staying at your post because right he, right it's it's really just about endurance it's about um, whether you allow the passions to obstruct uh, the the actions of, or the sort of path of reason um, or whether you you go on your way uh, according to you know what what you have set before yourself you know in the, yeah, in the face true. of it's, difficulty right so exactly. so because because the irascible appetites are all about um, the difficult or the painful uh, and as opposed to the the enjoyable or desirable and so moderating those in the face of reason or matching them to the action of reason is about um, not allowing the pain or uh, frustration of circumstances to uh, prevent the action of virtue, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's often the case in the Platonic dialogues that there's a lot of truth to the first, uh, the first definition that someone gives. Although Socrates will then show that you have to make some qualifications or else it's going to end up <laughs> proving all kinds of absurdities. But that is, the. I mean, as St. Thomas there says, it's a principal act. It's not the only act of, right. of bravery, which is also has to do with the right amount of, of aggression and so on. Right. But the principal act is not being dis, uh, 
not being driven back from one's pursuit of the good by um, difficulties. Right. And and you see in different people uh, different sort of natural inclinations. So some people, you bend the stick one way or another if you were educating a child. Some might be <clears throat> uh, rather too rash and some might be too timorous. Uh, so, so in my own case, I, I have one child who, who you know, uh, is always leaping before looking, and uh, fists flying at every opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And another one who's very anxious, and uh, everything is, uh, you know, has to be prepared and has to be, you know, very just so, or you can't go for, go on, you know, the slightest uh, obstacle, and you know, give up the whole plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does seem that on the whole. Because the one of the chief things also that fortitude helps with is the is the is death. Uh, mm-hmm. On the whole, it's more about allaying fear, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so on that note, the Christian um, account of fortitude is is Aquinas builds on Aristotle. He takes Aristotle's key definition, but people kind of points out that the Christian concept of fortitude has been radically transformed because of the new relationship to death that Christians have. And it's there naturally. Uh, but for Christians, it really is has been made new again. And this ties back to the Monteverdi. So maybe we can say a little bit about, about death and the ways in which, as Christians, as Catholics, we have to uh, have fortitude in the face of both de- deaths, uh, spiritual death and uh, physical death and the sort of dark night of the soul. Yeah, well, first, with regard to physical death, even in Aristotle, you have the account of bravery as being willing to suffer death in a noble battle right. for the sake of the city and so on. Um, so the the kind of paragon of courage for for Aristotle is, is the warrior who, who d- is brave enough to die in battle, the sort of Leonidas and his Spartans and so on. But the paragon of courage in, in Christian theology is the martyr who is praised in this Monteverdi piece, who uh, is not in a, he's not fighting a, a war with, with a sword and spear against his enemies. He's just allowing them to kill him without putting up any uh, warlike resistance. But he, he understands um, or he believes in the eternal good and the greatness of that good outweighing any uh, temporal good. So he's willing to give up all temporal goods and the foundation of all temporal goods, which is this mortal life, for the sake of the uh, the true good, which is to come. Yes. So uh, I have had uh, actually both the both the timorous and the uh, eager child have been both uh, speaking of martyrdom. This is something Pieper talks about. They've both uh, sort of told me that when they grow up, their plan is to go and find uh, find some horrible pagan and uh, suffer a martyr's death. <laughs> and uh, this is this is their. I've I've tried to tell them that that uh, you can't uh, seek it out. Maybe we can say a little bit about what Peeper says there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because, I mean, this does seem to be like a natural mistake. There's a famous story of uh, Teresa of Avila also. St. Anthony did the same thing. But in fact, this is where the fear comes in as kind of uh, something I was trying to hint at earlier. Fear is, in a sense, good. Because if you didn't have the fear of losing something good, 
your act wouldn't be virtuous in the same way. Um, it certainly wouldn't be like humanly virtuous. It wouldn't be, you'd either be a beast or a god, as, as uh, Aristotle put it. The point being, we're not supposed to throw our lives away. And Pieper points to Thomas's commentary on uh, Jesus and St. Paul before the, uh, the priests, when they're both struck. Neither of them actually just turn the other cheek at that moment, but both of them rebuke the priests for what they're doing. And the point being, uh, we accept martyrdom through fortitude, but it would be foolhardy and it would be contrary to virtue to go and seek out death. Right. You don't, uh, you, you don't deny the goodness of, of this mortal life. You just see it in its proper relation to the greater good of eternal life. But you are, even the martyrs, I mean, as that example of St. Paul shows, there's still a virtuous exercise of the irascible appetite involved where he calls right. the, the guy, you you know, you uh, whitewashed wall or whatever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's a, that's another good example. So it, it involves not only fear. So you don't just want to give up your life uh, as if it's worth nothing. It's worth something. That's what makes the act. Uh, that's what makes the sacrifice a real sacrifice. But it also, uh, fortitude also involves uh, the irascible appetite. So you should be angry. Uh, and that seems to me that like uh, anger is in a way the, or hatred is in a way the inverse of love. So if you love something, you're going to hate its opposite. Right. So if you love God, you'll hate uh, sin, say. And uh, this is a way, and often we think of anger again as like a, uh, uh, you know, never be angry, you know, that this, this perverse stoicism, what do you call it? Uh, right. uh, but uh, in fact, if you love God, you will hate sin. So anger has a, a proper place. There is such a thing as, as righteous wrath. I, one thing that um, I was thinking about earlier uh, while I was, you know, waking up <laughs> this morning, it was, uh, we're recording early today. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, the way that, uh, the other, uh, parts of the other cardinal virtues participate in fortitude. Um, so for instance, in, uh, what's a good example, uh, regnative prudence, for example, uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's kind of a, an analogous, uh, part of fortitude that that uh, happens uh, in the course of um, con- uh, reigning uh, or or governing uh, a political body, and so you can see this um, not just in the willingness to execute judgments, which are difficult or can be difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the willingness to uh, suffer a lot of things to make people unhappy, to, um, you know, sometimes um, act against the advice of uh, some part of your uh, commonwealth or something like this. You know, there, there are a lot of circumstances that require uh, difficulties that aren't you're not you're not at risk of death necessarily or uh, physical pain or even some sort of spiritual evil uh, but things that are genuinely uh, hard to endure for for 
uh, people as social beings, you know. Exactly. We yeah. want to please. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. If you're, if you're ruling, yes. you're often not going to please, and that will be the right thing to do. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Actually, can I read you a little passage from Yes, uh, please. Barchester Towers on this because yes. I've just <laughs> I've just been been rereading Anthony Trollope's uh, Barchester Towers. And so good. one of the main characters in this novel is an Anglican bishop, the Bishop of Barchester. And there's a scene, there's kind of a key scene between him and his wife when he has the opportunity to exercise bravery um, with regard to his wife so that he can really rule his diocese. <laughs> Otherwise, he'll be ruled by Mrs. Prouty. And this is what, what uh, Trollope writes. A difficulty, said Mrs. Prouty. What difficulty? And then... In a kind of apostrophe, he addresses the character of the bishop. Now, bishop, look well to thyself and call up all the manhood that is in thee. Think how much is at stake. If now thou art not true to thy guns, no slope can hereafter aid thee. Slope how can he? The yeah, slope being the, the domestic chaplain who's in league with his wife. How can he who deserts his own colors at the first smell of gunpowder expect faith in an ally? Although he wants to make Slope his ally. Now that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the reference here. Thou thyself hast sought the battlefield. Fight out the battle manfully. Now thou art there. Courage, bishop, courage. Frowns cannot kill, nor can sharp words break any bones. But of course he doesn't have courage and he oh, no. <laughs> capitulates completely to Mrs. Prouty's frowns. He, uh, it's also interesting because he, what he really lacks is endurance. He, he, he makes like a move towards, uh, towards uh, trying to put his wife uh, in her place, as it were. But in the end, he can't, he can't withstand any of her, any of her uh, onslaught, which, which she is able to keep going and going and going, and he is, he's not able to take it. Right, she can wear him down pretty easily. Yes. <laughs> what does she do? What... what? <laughs> What's well, her, the particular uh, the particular question uh, at issue here is, he's supposed to appoint a new warden to the hospital, and the question is whether he'll appoint the old warden who resigned um, under particular circumstances, but now it's almost a matter of justice to restore him to his place, or whether he'll appoint a f someone who belongs to the his wife, uh, Mrs. Prouty, and Mr. Slope, the domestic chaplain. They're evangelicals, mm -hmm. and the old warden is an Anglo-Catholic. Or at least a high, a high and dry church uh, <laughs> clergyman. So they, of course, want him to appoint an evangelical uh, warden to the hospital. Uh -huh. I see. And that's what he eventually does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We uh, oh, come for the discussion of uh, Thomistic virtues. Stay for the 19th century Anglican uh, ecclesiastical politics. I've never read yeah, but, I mean, Trollope. Still, I I keep meaning to. Because uh, uh, you have a treat. You have a treat yeah. in store for you. But I mean, it's so, uh, although 19th century Anglicanism is obviously a fake religion, nevertheless, you see the same, <laughs> you see the same, uh, you see the same problems in the true religion. If you look at certain of our, of our bishops now, the, uh, yes. the lack of fortitude and perseverance is yeah. similar. I think, I think that um, it's, it's characteristic of modern life i mean there's this collapse uh in the virtue of temperance like yeah it's it's so universal and with that necessarily or almost necessarily well no necessarily goes a uh, goes a loss of, of fortitude because if you yeah. if you can't um 
if you can't sustain yourself in the absence of uh, desired goods or pleasures, um, then you you won't have any endurance. You won't be able to, uh, you know, stand stand at your post or uh, suffer any or even the the most extreme evils for the sake of what's right. So, and that seems that seems right to me because at least in my experience. So obviously, you know, death and like battle and martyrdom are the highest ultimate expressions of fortitude. But it seems we we're talking about the the cardinal virtues going together. It's kind of been a theme of these these last few episodes. It seems to me that the work a day, every day exercise of fortitude is when you uh, try to exercise temperance. Yeah. One of the things that's hard about temperance is that due to the fall, our passions are so unbridled, particularly if you weren't raised uh, just so, as, as Aristotle says, mm-hmm. uh, so that you have to you have to endure things and you have to really rouse yourself. And this is Plato's point, right? And the... Uh, which one is it's not the Republic. Which which one is it? Uh, he talks about getting the lion on the side of the man. No, it is the Republic. He talks about getting the lion on the side of the man to, to resist the many headed tentacled monster. Right. Which is your your desires and your appetites. And, and it's true. I think that the ordinary expression sort of the most common as you're living your sort of average modern life. The most common way that you have to express fortitude is is. You know, resisting things like lust or gluttony or sloth or anything like that, where you're you're uh, attracted to pleasure or anger are... too. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, anger too. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny. Um, I think you guys alluded to this earlier, but uh, just the the fact that one can exhibit a, a deficiency of fortitude through an excess of anger, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and. Uh, you know, you see this especially online nowadays. Uh, <laughs> people just in in you know, furors over who knows what. But yeah, I, I mean, it's... I don't know what you're talking about, and I've never myself. <laughs> <laughs> A little bird told me that. You know, um, okay. Anyway, so uh, one of the. One of the uh, potential parts of temperance is continence, right? And um, right. it seems to me that in in at least basic cases, when you're cultivating temperance, continence is also an act of fortitude, right? Because yeah. your your desires that the many-headed beast is really drawing you away from the mean, and so it's necessary to have that lion to uh, fend it off and clear the path toward uh toward you know what's proper and so when aristotle talks about pleasure also he talks about how there's some things are are pleasurable uh just sort of directly and then other things and i think continence is an example of this are pleasurable either entirely or largely because they're a relief from pain Mm -hmm. so you really when you're when you're experiencing temptation at least certainly in my own experience it's a painful thing you have to you have to resist it as you said with with fortitude you have to rouse yourself to exist it because it, it's you're going to suffer doing it yeah until of course you reach perfect virtue as i have now and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm no longer troubled by any such things there's there's a hilarious passage in in dom paul de Lat's, uh commentary on the rule of saint benedict paul de Lat was the second abbot of Solem, 
after the revival of Salem in the 19th century. And uh, he's talking about uh, perpetual religious chastity and uh, sort of trying to rouse people's spirits who, who think they maybe are not strong enough for this. And he says, even women and children can do this. What's your problem? <laughs> 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 Sli- slightly loose translation there, but that, that was the basic thought. <laughs> Do you not have enough manhood to resist (laughs) pleasure? Yeah, but I mean, you know, this is this is one of the one of the early stages of of fortitude, and obviously, I think the the ultimate are things like losing your life. Um, Yeah, you were talking. I mean, you were talking earlier about how there's also. I mean, people discusses how there's also an exercise of fortitude in in the mystical life, particularly right. with regard to the dark night, first the dark night of the senses and then the dark night of the soul, where um, God withdraws consolations from you and it takes fortitude to accept that withdrawal of consolation as a, a, a necessary step towards union with him. And most people don't have that fortitude, so they, they draw back and um, they stop spending as much time in prayer and they begin to dissipate themselves with distractions and so on and don't press on and so they stop making progress in the spiritual life yeah so th- and this is a particularly christian thing too uh this really is like specific to christian and really like catholic uh mystical thoughts so can you say a little more about the dark night of the soul this is something that's always sort of intrigued and uh terrified me well i mean the soul is is disordered th- uh through the wounds of original sin. Original sin removes, uh, is removed by baptism, um, but there's certain effects of it that are not removed, certain wounds of the sin. Certain kindling wood of sin is still there, as the Council of Trent puts it, the fomis peccati. Right. Um, and so part of the spiritual life consists in having one's attachment to created things having that attachment be purified so that you really love God with your whole heart and other things only in reference to God. As Augustine says, only God is to be enjoyed. Everything else is to be used for the sake of enjoying God. God draws you into the spiritual life um, first by using your affections and giving you at the level of, of your emotions signs of his presence that are consoling. But those signs are themselves creatures. They're created by God in order to draw you towards him, but they're not God himself. And so even those, even the attachment to those consolations has to be purified. So there's first the dark night of the senses, which has to do with that kind of level of the emotions, the sensible level, where God withdraws those consolations. So you're left in a kind of darkness without any joy at the level of the senses and a, a kind of a feeling of abandonment like Christ on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me right, right right but if you persevere through that then you come to a deeper kind of union in faith with god uh, which is a higher kind of union with god in this life than than the kind of emotional attachment to, that you have to him at the beginning of the spiritual life and then if you saint john on the cross says if you keep on going after that then you come to the dark night of the soul which is a purification of consolations, not on the sensible emotional level, but more on the intellectual, um, spiritual level. Which um, is really something analogous experience. happens. Yeah, so this, this gets to things that I think maybe 
uh, most uh, people don't experience in this life. Maybe it's, you know, purgatory is where, where they experience it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say most, but certainly I have not gotten to this point. I, I, I hate to disappoint all our listeners who uh, <laughs> believe that I... <laughs> we're a perfect savior. <laughs> we're, 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 yes, exactly. Uh, what, I, what I have experienced is I often pray uh, and, and, you know, reflecting on the rosary or whatever, you're, you're thinking about the agony in the garden, uh, pray to accept God's will completely and that's a hard thing to do it's yeah. it takes it takes a certain amount of for it takes a lot of fortitude actually to do it because you start thinking about what that entails and you're like oh well maybe not don't <laughs> like no no whatever you and then you're like oh no but then you all these different goods start coming pressing into your mind that you're like there's a lot there's a lot to to right <laughs> i mean it'd be one thing there's a sort of uh American Protestant expression of religion, this sort of Joel, uh, what's his name, Joel Osteen or Osteen? I don't actually know his name. Yeah. Uh, version, which is if you pray and have faith, God will just grant you all these material goods. Yeah. But, but for Catholics, the idea is that if he loves you, he's going to test you and you should be ready to be tested. Yeah. So you really start seeing your attachment to goods, like even before they're taken away. <laughs> Uh, you, of course, Potter, have given up all that. You're 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 in the monastery. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm kind of in a rich, fat feudal monastery. Robin Hood used to rob, you know. Yeah. There's no, the canons no. regular in Saint Augustine. They say, um, you know, the there are different kinds of Augustinians, and they they imitate. They all imitate their father, St. Augustine, but they imitate uh, him in different ways. So the, the Augustinian Aramites, they imitate his life after conversion. And we, the uh, Augustinian <laughs> canons, we imitate his life before conversion. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> the, the, oh, division, the division of monasteries in, in Austria, I believe, is it's divided into... Uh, it's not whether it's Benedict or, or uh, the rule of Benedict or... Augustinian rule or whatever it's it's beer and wine right yeah 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 beer monasteries and wine monasteries that's right yeah and Heiligen Kreutz is a wine it's monastery? a wine monastery yeah okay yeah. okay <laughs> uh, yeah so no but that uh, is the point of it, the the purpose of the monastic life in a uh, is really to um, to very consciously try to give up the uh, the the good things of this world um, to give up attachment to um, to wealth and pleasure and uh, long life and all these things in order to fix your heart more fully on the the eternal good. Right, That's and the theory. and and the the idea is also, I mean, in some ways, uh, it's a withdrawal from temptation. Uh, so, in some ways, it's easier to do that but in another way I, I believe it's your your the idea is to go out to the desert to wrestle with the devil so it's much much harder than our our secular lives uh in that sense as well right there's a sense in which in temp- temptation is increased when uh when you're fasting you and it's notorious that when you fast you become irritable and um 
easily tempted and so on. Uh, so, um, there's that, that does require an, a, a kind of spiritual fortitude because you're increasing in one sense, you're increasing temptation. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Fasting for me with kids has always been a, uh, the irascible appetite <laughs> quickly <laughs> likewise giving up sleep which you often yes. do with kids like you yeah, notice yeah. the irascible appetite getting stronger and stronger within <laughs> you <laughs> right you become irritable and, and easily uh easily enraged yeah uh some 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 wag made the remark that uh as he grew older, he became more and more like his father and that he had two emotions, rage and suppressed rage. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, why, would that, why would that be? Why is it that... Um, I guess uh, anger comes with a sense of injustice, right? Naturally. Um, there's a sense that you're being deprived of a due good. Right. Uh, is and it's also, at least for... for, for I think for everybody, but certainly uh, it's a male experience, I think, that when you encounter obstacles, uh, anger is for helping you overcome those obstacles. Yeah. And so things like not having enough food, not having enough sleep, having children, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> coughing in your face and kicking you all night long. Uh-huh. These are obstacles. And all of a sudden you find yourself <laughs> full of Full of righteous indignation, except maybe it's not so righteous. <laughs> Anger and fear are, they're there for a reason. It, much like pain is there for a reason, it's, uh, they're, they're part of how a human should function. It's very hard, uh, it's very hard to have righteous anger, it, it, particularly if you're not very carefully controlling it. It so quickly turns into uh, a problem. Yeah. Uh, so if you're at all inclined to be irascible, uh, your life is spent reining that back and not uh, not giving into it. Even even though it is right that you're supposed to be angry at injustice, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like uh, like drunkenness. You know, there's yes. there's a point where a switch flips, although with with uh, alcohol, it's it's a lot more subtle when you've when you've gone over, but and at, at past that point, you've you've really ceded uh, reasonable governance over your acts, right? And yeah, and I, I think that's the key. That's the key is that uh, all of these things, fear can certainly do it, anger can do it, yeah. And then you know, uh, drunkenness or gluttonous or etc. Right? Yeah. They overflow. They overthrow reason, so that all virtue becomes being about keeping right reason on on her throne right one last thing Pieper talks about there's three sort of uh stages of virtue he talks about pre-moral uh not virtue fortitude pre-moral fortitude ethical fortitude and what's the last one it's uh mystical mystical fortitude so yeah. what can, can, let's just before we go Maybe, Potter, you could run us through what those three are and how they match up to the sort of rambling discussion we've had of Fortitude. <laughs> well, I didn't actually reread the pre so it's been a while since I read it. I'm going to note for the record, when we were discussing doing this, 
Potter said, "Oh, here's the text. Let's all read this and and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll <laughs> admit, we can discuss it." I skimmed the peeper, and then I have the Summa open, which I've actually I've read on Fortitude. Excellent. Unlike unlike the peeper, <laughs> and for some reason, I've always had an aversion to peeper, and and everyone everyone trustworthy tells me that he's wonderful, but I I just have never done it. He's See, got a very... For that, I can forgive you. I, I'm, I'm still struggling to forgive your dislike of Monteverdi. <laughs> I don't dislike Monteverdi. Potter it Edmund, all just Potter sounds Edmund like some holding sort of in Renaissance his... court dance. It's... His, his anger at I'm the I'm holding injustice. in my anger at this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unjust estimation of Monteverdi. But Pieper is, I mean, Pieper is good, but he's basically just summarizing Thomas. So if you're reading this summa, that's fine. You get pretty much everything that people would give you just from reading the summa. Okay. Peeper is not always as clear. Uh, he's very uh, he he's given to to at least in the four uh, the cardinal virtues. It's better to read Thomas and then read Peeper than the reverse because uh, when you're after you've read Thomas and you get the clear statements, then you read Peeper and he's got these kind of poetic like you know oh isn't right. this wonderful and he's going off right. in a sort of poetic right, right. rhapsody about it and you're like ah yes but if you read the rhapsody first you can show like, you how cool where is, is he going what's he talking about <laughs> yeah. yeah so it what, is what? Uh, in the context though it's kind of an interesting book because he wrote it um when the after the national socialists had, had already come to power in germany and um it is in part, a kind of veiled criticism of National Socialist uh, understandings see, of courage. Fortitude is all about resisting the Prussians, I'm <laughs> telling you. <laughs> so one, th- one thing that I find curious, and I guess it makes sense when you think of fortitude as governing uh, the thumos, the honorable part of the soul, but it doesn't really fit in with what we've discussed so far. But uh, is is um, the virtues of magnanimity and magnificence? Yes, uh, because they're really not, uh, at least, evidently on the you know first analysis about resisting some uh, evil or danger. Uh, right. So could could you talk about that, Potter? Yeah. So there are two there are two main acts of bravery, which are moderating fear and. Uh, and moderating aggression, mm-hmm. and magnificence and uh, magnanimity—they um, have to do with uh, the the right order of a kind of high spiritedness in um, in doing great things or in giving great gifts, um, where the you don't want to be uh, prodigal and and give away stuff that you need to achieve the good, but you don't want to be stingy in, uh, in sort of holding back that impulse of, uh, grandiosity, which is in this case, I mean, he's looking at it as, uh, not so much as moderating the fear of losing your stuff as moderating the impulse to do great things. Right. So do doing great things, but in the right order. There's also, but he, he, the magnanimity and, uh, and magnificence, you can, you can see them either as um, integrant parts of fortitude or as potential parts. Okay. That is, as integrant parts, they contribute to one act of fortitude. They, uh, they contribute because to do any great act of fortitude 
you need this kind of um, generosity of soul uh, that they signify. But you can also consider them as, that, so that would be in, what the scholastics call integrant parts. But you can also consider them as potential parts, that is, as virtues, other virtues that depend on the hinge virtue of fortitude, but have their own object, that is, that are not concerned with um, moderating fear and aggression with respect to danger, but that are uh, concerned with other activities of the irascible part of the soul, uh, the spirited part of the soul, as you're saying with the tumos, the thumos, the... Uh, that spirited part of the soul is what uh, greatness of soul is concerned with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it altogether. Um, it it's a it put it builds a, a very pleasing picture of fortitude, um, not not just in moderating anger, uh, resisting dangers, uh, standing or or having patience in the in the face of. Uh, difficulties and suffering, but uh, the uh, but also uh, cultivating a kind of um, beauty of soul in in one's generosity or or great deeds uh, and the pursuit of difficult things uh, to the right extent. You know, it's it's nice. I uh, I don't feel like this is an aspect of courage that's, uh, at all widely understood today, at least, um, in America. Uh, yes, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a very, the, the formulation that St. Thomas is depending on there is the one in Aristotle, which is a very aristocratic account of that virtue. Which sounds yeah, we don't. Foreign to yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. We it's don't understand it, or and we certainly, I don't think we do it very well. No, no absolutely not. <laughs> we we go straight for the crass and vulgar. Yeah, we attempt. Well, yeah. When yeah. someone does something great, there's usually an element of vainglory. Uh, you know, immediately it's it's all about the mass adulation, or even if it wasn't intended, that's what we transform it into. Um, which is kind of it's about the gross. what did, what did you the say? vain glory it's about the the sort of yeah. the celebration of the greatness uh and it really overwhelms the virtue of of what's being done um and i guess part of that is just a consequence of of the scale of mass media and things like that i part of it is definitely uh we we don't have a sense of what uh aristocracy or monarchy should look like and so we we end up with uh, uh you know the gilded age these cartoon millionaires are just uh they're just uh tacky and uh <laughs> and sort of gross <laughs> yeah <laughs> displays of excess yeah yeah it's interesting you know we really are in a second gilded age it's like the it's like yeah. the 1880s all over again um, and it also, there's an element of, uh, like Renaissance Italy too, where you have these very powerful families and they've stashed their wealth away and no one sees how they live. So like, I haven't the slightest idea what sort of excesses Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, indulges or anything about his lifestyle, except his recent well. marital issues, which, <laughs> you know. Now we have a little too much. Exactly. Uh, 
But you know the same the same goes for any number of these um, top tech. I think there is a real there, there's a similarity with uh, uh, Italy back in the, the Renaissance or whatever. But yeah, there they really did uh, not at the level of virtue, but sort of at the the quasi virtues. They had a much better way of displaying magnificence, even if it even if the like. You know, say what you will about the Medici's, but you know, hiring Michelangelo to create timeless works of art to show what a great man you are yeah. is a lot better than whatever oh, for whatever sure. we're doing now. And also, say what you will about the 1880s. I don't know of any of those uh, robber barons who were uh, drinking the blood of the young in order to <laughs> achieve, <laughs> achieve immortality the way Peter Thiel is, or is reported to. Reported no, we'll to, get, uh... yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. There's, I mean, there, there's some Christian writers who think there's an opposition between Christianity and Aristotle's account of magnanimity and magnificence, but... Um, in, in, even for example, Alistair McIntyre, whom we discussed in a previous podcast episode, he he thinks that this aristocratic account of the good man is is really incompatible with, with uh, Christianity. But obviously, Saint Thomas doesn't. Uh, yeah, there yeah. in the Summa, he just very placidly explains basically the account of magnanimity you get in in the Nicomachean Ethics, and he doesn't see any opposition to um, to Christianity there. And there is. So- I think I think the best example of this that I can think of is, so I, I remember uh, at Heiligenkreuz when I was visiting, the church there has a very Cistercian style, which is very good. So it's very unadorned, very plain, small windows, uh, you know, and there's like three windows symbolizing the Trinity, but otherwise it's very plain, or at least the original yeah, uh, expression the, the was, it, yeah, yeah uh, the the oldest part. But I think that's good. But then if you go to like uh, Munich and the Assamkirche or, or some of these, these cathedrals, they're, obviously there's gold and silver and statues everywhere. And this isn't bad. The, the, the Protestants and the Reformers are wrong about this. This is good. This is the, the poor, in fact, of the church giving everything they can to create something beautiful yeah. for God. And it's very moving and fitting, particularly, I think, in a place like a cathedral because— the common people, we're all human and we're all moved by visual and and music and, uh, you know, artistic expressions of devotion. Yeah. Uh, well, it's right. like, and, and, it's like uh, you know, the construction of the, of the tabernacle, um, you know, the resources being drawn from the Israelites. It's that sort of thing. Right. Like it's, it's, right, it's right. an absolute constant and it makes perfect sense. And so yeah. the same thing when you see like the archbishop or a cardinal there's something comical and off when you see, uh, not that this ever happens, but if you see them like trying to be austere and they're in like polyester and it's, you know, they're like, I'm a plain man of the people. And it just, it looks wrong. Whereas there's a sense in which decadent as they may or may not have been, uh, the Renaissance Cardinals had it closer to the truth where they, uh, did have, you know, finery investments. Obviously there can be an excess there. Or right. you can think of, I mean, and uh, there's, and if it's proper magnificence, it's not principally ordered to um, your own self-importance. Right, it's, right. right. It's for the, it's for the common good, really. And as you're saying, everyone uh, can see the image of the the common good in the the glory of the representatives of it. So the bishop, as 
being the representative of Christ in the particular church that he's the bishop of, uh, the adornment there um, is an, really an adornment of Christ. And in that glory, the, the whole church can uh, have some inkling of the glory of, of Christ as the high priest and king. Yeah, I was watching The Crown and... Uh, the Crown? Could, say, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Netflix series. Well, I, I don't know where it is originally show, but it's on Netflix. It's, it's about the... Uh, uh, Mount Batten uh, reign in England. Uh, the pretenders? <laughs> yeah, the pretenders. Say what you will about them, uh, but the episode where she's actually anointed as monarch of England and they, they sing uh, Zadok the priest is, you know, maybe glorious. the constitutional... Yeah, it's glorious. Maybe the constitutional monarchy has fallen away from anything that you'd really want. Maybe there's all these problems, but... That was an expression. I think the magnificence there was not at all about Elizabeth's personal preferences or, or her self-aggrandizement, but uh, it was about uh, the common good and showing something magnificent for the people and, and doing it for the state. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. You can draw a parallel between Elizabeth's role in modern English government and uh, the proper role of uh the uh, the episcopate or the hierarchy in the church uh, uh, as compared to um, the celestial hierarchies I guess so um, she's just she's a visual living symbol of the power of the English state at this point she has no real sovereignty but she represents right. the sovereignty of parliament um, and in the same way uh, the episcopate uh, is a representation of uh, divine order, right? And so the right. the honors that we bestow on bishops um, may or may not actually be merited by by their qualities of life or their you know personal virtues or or anything. Um, right. It's it's almost irrelevant. I mean, not entirely irrelevant. And, and in fact, this is why I, I think this is why Catholics uh, scandalize Protestants so often. Uh, the honors we bestow on bishops and cardinals, etc., are strictly speaking, they're never merited by the bishop or cardinal. Right. It's merited by Christ. And so the, the you know, Protestants see this and are, are scandalized. How can you, you know, you're kissing his ring. You're, you know, what are you doing? Well, and Catholics uh, see it and are scandalized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there can be an excess. It. But, but uh, yeah, the, the idea is that it's because of the office and the office of Christ and the apostles. Right. We certainly don't. I, I've always been amused by the Eastern Catholic or East, the Byzantine rites when they ordain a priest. They sing <laughs> in basso profundo, axios, axios, yeah. uh, and it means worthy. And of course, he's not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> Narrator, he was not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But the point is, why are they doing that? Is that is it just are they just confused? No, it's no. because of the office and the office of Christ, who was worthy and who, by his merit, allows us. Is that why? I thought it was a matter of them not expressing objections to the ordination of a candidate. Perhaps that's why. But I'm. <laughs> but I don't. Esoteric I don't reading, know. reading that I've just invented. <laughs> uh. Yours is yours is more uh, more lovely overall. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it does. Uh, although it's in a sense it's 
his own unworthiness is ir- irrelevant. In another sense, it does the 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 fact that he is that sign of divine order does give him a a special obligation to conform his life to it. So to right, be absolutely. as worthy as he can. Well, you right. see the same thing in the 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 Tridentine Mass, which is the one I'm the the old form, the one I'm more familiar with. Uh, the prayers sort of oscillate between uh, I'm not worthy, uh, you know, help me, uh, overlook my faults, and, you know, I wash my hands amongst the innocents, you know, uh, right, stuff right. like that. Why is that? Well, because as man, none of us are worthy, but the priest, uh, Christ was worthy. So uh, he's able to say these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, good point. Yeah. So I think on that point, well, there's, well, if, if we can. Uh, yes, I, I thought it would be appropriate to talk about perseverance at the end, <laughs> because it, in a way, it's the, it's the last virtuous act of, of the human life, and it's it's the last act of fortitude. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess since I'm bringing bringing it up, I, I should, you should uh, say something. I should say something about it. I I just think it's it's interesting to me. First off, that there's a distinction between. Uh, Something like patience, which uh, or endurance, where you you're you're uh, proceeding along the right way uh, in the face of anger or through anger in some cases, or you know um, everything that we've talked about. Uh, there's a distinction between that, which is the the process, and uh, perseverance, which is about the attainment. Um, and uh, obviously, this comes into uh, especially strong light uh, when fortitude is transformed under grace, um, because perseverance there isn't just about you know finally winning the battle or finally making it home or something like that. Uh, it's about uh, dying um, and uh, persevering in grace, uh, which is itself a whole interesting little theological. Uh, nugget or <laughs> what, a, yeah. what a miserable yeah. metaphor but anyways yeah you you understand and it's it's sort of what i what i was thinking about at the beginning uh all all the virtues are elevated by uh by grace and transformed uh fortitude seems to be particularly notable because fortitude is about you know if if you're human it's about withstanding fear and curbing anger but the supernatural uh, fortitude that we're called to is is not possible naturally. So we're withstanding things that you know we oughtn't be able to uh, naturally. And it's perseverance is the ult, is in a way the ultimate. It's the final expression of that. Right. So I guess what, where do you see perseverance in, in distinction from the other uh, acts of fortitude? It's it's when you fall away, uh, especially that. Perseverance is is visible uh, because it's visible in in a return to what one yeah. ought to be doing, right? So Thomas talks about um, uh, falling into sin, uh, and the grace of perseverance is uh, sort of manifested in the return from a, a sinful state uh, into grace, uh, so that one can uh, you know return and be sustained. Um, it's, I don't know. It's just very, it's beautiful. Yeah. It is. I mean, it yeah. seems like, it seems like the two, 
the kind of two senses of perseverance that St. Thomas uses. The one is um, the what he gets from Aristotle, where it's keeping fortitude for over a long time when the difficulty should wear you down, mm-hmm. not because of its essential greatness, but just because it's it's been attacking you for so long that it seems like um, you, would, you would get worn down if you didn't have this perseverance. But then the other senses, which he gets, I think, from St. Augustine, is final perseverance, meaning staying in the state of grace um, up to the moment of death, which would include, as you say, when you fall away, coming, returning to grace, yeah. so that when you, when you finally die, then you're in the state of grace, which is what it's all about. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the the first kind, which you see in also in in the natural virtue of of uh, bravery, that has Saint Thomas talks about two vices which are opposed to to it, and one is called uh, one which I've kind of been reflecting on recently due to discussions on social media. <laughs> Is called molitius, yeah. that is softness. <laughs> Sorry, I was sort was... of hoping we would talk about this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so molitius, softness, sometimes translated effeminacy. Uh, this goes back to, to what you were saying about the relation of, of fortitude to temperance uh, earlier in our discussion. Um, that if you're intemperate, then it's impossible to have fortitude. And this softness is a kind of, um, is is closely related to intemperance. It's, uh, it has to do with, with um, being too attached to, to comfort uh, and too afraid of, of discomfort and pain. So, yeah, it's... And what was the other one? There was the second one, yeah? It's, it's pertinacity. Right, yeah. Uh, which, I forget how, how exactly that's defined. Uh, well, obviously, okay, yeah. So pertinacity is, is being excessively attached to a course of action or a position uh, when it, it shouldn't be held, right? And right? A person is said to be Pertinacious who holds on impudently as being utterly tenacious, um, or being its headstrongness, or or being excessively opinionated. Uh, so yes. uh, you can see how how a defect in in courage would enter into that. For instance, if if uh, you become convinced of your own correctness and angry at anyone who wants to. <laughs> speak against you because how dare they speak out of ignorance when of course i am right you know don't they know don't they know how, how could they be so presumptuous as to as to speak you know against the truth which i am you know yeah, yeah, yeah right. but and then so, you become unwilling to see the 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 problems with your own position right yeah i i just i think mm, pertinacity is obviously i mean this is a a common uh, vice, but I feel like the the uh, molitia or or effeminacy um, is so characteristic of the present age. Yes, uh, <laughs> universally. Well, you, see, you, you see both. 
you see both online. Uh, you see more the pertinacity. You see everybody uh, online. You can, you, oh Lord, can you ever? Uh, but you see, like you, you, when you're not yourself involved, it's very easy to be like, oh, look at these two people arguing. They're talking past each other. And now they're just shouting at each other and calling names. These people are too angry. They're they're pertinacious. They should both reflect and step back but then you also like you maybe don't see it but in, in certain social dynamics this happens online yeah you know someone says something that's maybe wrong or they're too far goes too far but they're kind of a mean character they have a lot of followers or whatever and you find yourself saying should i correct oh, I, I don't want to pick a fight here yeah that would be ooh. that would be, oh no i won't and so online, probably that's often prudence, but it happens in, in person, too, where you uh, there's a need for you to say something or stick up for yourself. And you just don't want to do it because confrontation would be too horrible. Yeah. Although yeah. To, and, there's a there's a counterpoint to that, which is that sometimes it's it's more oh, prudent certainly. to with, withhold confrontation because you oh, can certainly, judge certainly. that, you know, it's it's going to have no good effect. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you see the softness. I mean, this is uh, something that's been talked about a certain amount recently, that this kind of softness or effeminacy is a, a vice that particularly afflicts the clergy, um, in particularly in decadent periods like our own, with, that have a lack of, of strong ascetic uh, discipline and you know, hardly anyone flogs themselves or fasts or anything. It's not surprising they've become soft and, and give way easily, um, like like uh, Dr. Proudy in Barchester Towers <laughs> giving way to his wife. I always think of the beginning of the uh, of Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, where he talks about the various people, the various tribes, and he's like how brave and warlike they are, and it all depends right. on how far they are from Rome. Which is, of course, the center of every feminacy and softness in this account. That's fantastic. Which I suppose fits in also with the point about the the clergy being particularly no. close to Rome. This. Yeah, too close to Rome. But I mean, like it's uh, you know, civilization is great, but a a problem with civilization is that you end up being uh, dependent on these. Uh, comforts and conveniences of the civilization right and you see that in sort of weird the weird uh attitude that people have towards animals for example like animal rights activists yeah. and so on i think oh you know how could you how could you want to kill this nice little rabbit and eat it you know it's <laughs> so cruel it's like give me a break it's, it's an irrational animal it's ordered to humankind it's an means to an end <laughs> you, you also see it you also see softness like uh I was, I was thinking about this, the uh, uh, debates on, uh, you know, uh, NFP and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, I, you know, I'm not anti-NFP or anything, but particularly secular people act What's as NFP if, for people who hate acronyms? <laughs> <laughs> or initialism? Natural, natural family planning. Uh, okay. It's, you know, the... Yeah, yeah, the, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, for the folks back home. But there's this idea that like, oh, anybody having to go without sex for any period of time, if you're married, how could you possibly have to do that? That's a sacrifice you could never be called to do. Well, back in the day, uh, people would frequently have, you know, the advice would be, well, your wife can never get pregnant again, she'd die. 
So that's that, right. you know, I mean, and now that the thought of that would be like unthinkable, but in fact, it's just a risk that you have that it's something that might come up. And if that hardship comes up, you have to be ready and willing to endure it. Mm-hmm. Right. And their fortitude needs to arouse the, the spirited part of the soul to rise to, to the occasion and overcome the uh, reluctance to undergo hardship and deprivation yeah yeah we have to be willing to be martyrs and it's 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 partially a a matter of law but it's also we we don't throw our lives away but you know it's there's there's a reluctance it seems to me in the modern world and in the modern church to think that anyone could be required to be a martyr in any sense even a minor thing yeah how how could you say that we're required to do that we're we're a church of mercy right or it's it's a it's an abstract thing that's off you know, yeah. at a, on the horizon, way out there, and it's not something that applies to the ordinary difficulties of you know maintaining a household or uh, performing good work or all of these things. Actually, I maybe I, I one of the things that strikes me uh, about Opus Dei and this whole uh, Escrivan spirituality yeah, yeah. is that they get fortitude very right. I yes. think uh, it's. It's uh, it's one of the the best things about their whole like inner interior discipline. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah, and they and see the connection to asceticism. They they wear those little discipline right. chains yeah. or whatever around their legs to prick them and good stuff. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. needed. It's needed. I mean, because you know, life is so convenient now. Yeah. I think on that note, I think we've. Uh, uh, discussed it as well as we're going to discuss it today. This was Thank awesome. So I mean, I we really did a, a full tour of, of the virtue of fortitude. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>